Hello, um, I'm Eileen Irvin. I'm an Associate Director in our Survey Research Method Centre and welcome to another episode of the Ipsos UK Survey Research Method Centre podcast. Today we're going to be talking about cognitive interviewing, what it is, why you might use it and what it can teach you about how the public interact with survey questions. We'll be particularly focusing on cases where you may need to think carefully about how the interviews are done, such as with sensitive subjects or um, children and young people um, where they're the participants. Um, We have three fantastic guests here to talk to you today about this topic. Um, Firstly, Margaret Blake, a research director in our health surveys team and contributing author to Cognitive Interviewing Practice, a practical guide to delivering cognitive interviewing methods in social research. We are also joined by Anna Beckett, a freelance research contractor um, who's worked in uh, survey research methods for 20 years. And last but certainly not least, we're joined by Jack Watson, a research manager in our children, education and families team, specialising in research with children and young people. So thank you all for being here today. So firstly, I'm going to start with you, Margaret. What is cognitive interviewing for people who've not come across it before? Well, cognitive interviewing is a technique used to test whether survey questions are being understood and then responded to in the way intended by the researcher. It was developed originally for testing survey questions, but it does have wider applications, such as testing advanced letters, instructions or information leaflets. But thinking about the context of testing survey questions, it's a qualitative research method used to test quantitative research instruments. So it combines both qualitative and quantitative elements. Surveys work on the premise that standard questions are asked to everyone. And so the analysis of the data, extrapolation to the population and comparison between subgroups relies on the questions being not only administered in a standard way, but also received and responded to in a standard way. And the roots of cognitive interviewing lie in cognitive psychology and it uses a four-stage question and answer model that was developed by Tarangiao. And these reflect the stages that participants go through when um, being asked and then answering survey questions. And so the four elements are firstly comprehension. Overall, do they understand what the question is about? But do they also understand the terms and the words used in the question in the way that was intended by the researcher? And then retrieval. Can they recall the information they're being asked to give an answer on or are they able to draw on the relevant attitudes or views? Judgment is they'll be thinking, is the answer that I've come to in my head what's needed? Do I need to adjust it because it's not really socially desirable? Is it too hard work to think of the right answer? Do I need to adjust my methods to an estimation? And then once they have their answer in mind, there's the stage of response. Does the answer format or the given answer categories match how they want to answer the question? And I've talked through it in one order, but actually it's an iterative process with people going round between all the stages. So they might understand the question in one way and then when they see the answer categories think that's not what I thought the question was about and then revise their understanding of the question. And then for self-completion, there are two additional elements. There's, do they perceive that it's a questionnaire? And can they comprehend the layout and know how to move to the next question, how to read the instructions? Do they know what to do? So I know there's also been um, 
with some of the work that ONS has been doing on their survey transformation um, programs, they've also started talking about cogability testing, where you, they kind of combine it a bit with usability testing. Yes, and that gives a greater focus, especially in self-completion modes, to the, the element that the participant has to go through themselves to navigate, understand, see all the things that are written on the questionnaire, whether it's online or paper. Uh, those can be included in a cognitive interview, but the concept of cogability testing is really helpful for highlighting how important that is. And it's not just the words and the meanings, but also how they engage with the instrument. Jack, I'm going to come to you next. Um, so when you're working on a, on a survey, um, what do you think the benefits of cognitive interviewing are? Because I know we don't do it for all of our surveys. I think it's also building a little bit on what Margaret said there, but you know, it is our job as a researcher to ask specifically the right questions that can be understood by the respondent, but then also provide meaningful, meaningful information to our clients as well. So a benefit of cognitive testing a questionnaire is that you, know, you help to refine it and you make sure that the intent of the question um, and potential answer options are suitable and make the most sense to the person completing the questionnaire as well. It can really expose potential problems with a survey. For example, you could be asking a certain question to somebody who shouldn't be answering that question based on their early responses, and it can help you to you know, perfect routing through your questionnaire and also make sure that each question is asked to specifically the right person as well. There also might be words in the survey that the target audience don't understand. Um, a recent example, we were speaking to people for who were receiving intensive personalized employment support with a wide range of needs. And um, there were even words like circumstances that you'd think would be potentially understood by everybody. But, you know, it's going through that process to to perfect that and making sure that it's understood really clearly. It can help you to spot repetition of answer options that you hadn't noticed. And yeah, participants taking part in your cognitive interviews as well can often suggest alternative wording that would make the most sense to them or even suggest extra response categories that you as a researcher hadn't initially thought of. Um, so yeah, again, helping you to design a questionnaire that's best. There might also be questions that respondents don't want to answer. Um, and so you can create alternative ways to ask that question and you know try to ensure that people aren't uncomfortable when answering your questionnaire because that's something that you definitely don't want. So yeah, um, avoiding that. And I think encouraging respondents to think out loud as well allows you to see how someone might respond to your survey in practice. So by focusing on their thought processes, then we as research can identify more clearly if there are any problems with the question wording or responses and then make any necessary changes after, the, after that to ensure the questions work as they are meant to, basically. Um, and then lastly, I think it's just, I think again, Margaret mentioned the iterative process of it, but going through multiple rounds there um, means that you can kind of tick off questions to be included in the final version as they become unproblematic and you feel confident in them. Um, and then the later versions of your cognitive interviews, if you're doing it in a, in a sequence of rounds, you can more focus on those questions that are causing difficulties and spend a little bit more time to create the perfect one there. But becoming a simple process as you go through really as you're saying that i'm already remembering those questionnaires that you think oh i've got this perfect questionnaire and then you test it with real humans and think oh my goodness what what have i done they the the way they understand it and the words they they use just aren't the words that we as researchers necessarily think about the world in 
I mean, ideally, obviously, we'd be doing this on every single survey we ever create, but um, that's that's not necessarily realistic. So I'll come to you, Anna. What kind of projects do you think we most need to think about cognitive interviewing? I mean, I was going to say <laughs> any survey could benefit from this, and I, I, I know I'm biased, but at the same time, I do think that... It's amazing how surprised you can be whenever you test a questionnaire with the public. I think, obviously, there's there's more extensive ways of doing it and, and less extensive ways of doing it. And even the standard protocol of testing your questionnaire with a colleague can help you a little bit if you don't have the budget for a full cognitive testing, um, suite of con- cognitive testing. That said, obviously, there are certain times when it makes more sense to do cognitive testing. If you've got a big survey, if you've got a, so, so if you've got a bigger budget, then obviously it's re- the, high, the stakes are high. It's really important you get those questions exactly right if it's something that's really sensitive so if it's something where you're not sure how people are going to react to the questions and need to really make sure as Jack said that you're asking those questions sensitively in a way people feel comfortable answering those questions it can be really helpful I think if you're going to do a tracker survey you may as well get it set up right from the start so it's really helpful to get it early on so it's done really well but equally I've also done cognitive testing where a tracker has been running for a few years and actually you realize that it's outdated language has moved on and that different surveys on breastfeeding for example that just the way people talk about things has changed over time and therefore the way you ask the questions and the answer codes need to change and it's really important to keep revisiting that so just because you've done it once doesn't mean it lasts forever um, I've also had some clients do them retrospectively where they've got answers they didn't understand from a quantitative survey and they've gone why why did people say that and then the cog testing afterwards has actually explained that's not best practice but it is a useful use of the technique to try and understand and unpick something that's going fun or something that doesn't seem right in, in a survey so there's a lot of different times when you could use it yeah and I guess that retrospective thing that probably works quite well with tracker surveys where you're kind of trying to unpick this is why this question needs to change and then what what can it do so it, exactly it, yeah the, the, I think the particular client I'm thinking of had been working really hard to move a metric and it hadn't moved it had been really intransigent and they were like why is this metric not moving and then we did the cog testing and it turned out it was measuring something completely different to what they thought uh, oh that's why my my important metric for my organization's not moved and then they were able to talk about well how do we ask the question in a different way that gets a, the thing that we would have been moving to see if we actually if we asked the question differently could we actually have said we are actually getting better on that we're just not asking the right question to measure it so no that that definitely <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Um, and then Margaret is kind of following on for that. When we are doing sort of cognitive interviewing, what do we need to think about that might impact how we do our cognitive interviewing? Well, traditionally, um, it's a face-to-face technique, um, a one, one-on-one face-to-face interview. But as circumstances have changed or your budget changes, then how you do it might differ and um, particularly if you're testing online questionnaires or um, self-completions a face-to-face approach is not necessarily necessary and the pandemic has moved us to do more on teams and on telephone and we've adapted our approach accordingly. Jack mentioned it's ideal to do multiple rounds um, but I agree with Anna that even a little bit is better than nothing and so your budget will also affect how you how you go about it the population you're looking at will also affect that so although it's traditionally a one-to-one interview there should, could be some groups say children or vulnerable adults or people who receive care and support where you'd have another person present to support or um, chaperone them yeah I'm just thinking of some of the surveys we do um, looking particularly at unmet care needs 
needs or social care, where actually understanding the relationship between the person providing the support and the person trying to do the survey is really important. And that's particularly important where you're testing a questionnaire, where the questionnaire will itself be done by two people and it will be artificial just to speak to one. But then you have the challenge during the interview of balancing who am I speaking to and whose views really matter in terms of how they're going to go about responding to this question. If you're speaking to children, the whole setting of the interview may vary. If it's a school-based survey, you probably want to do the cognitive testing in school as well. Um, If you're speaking to professionals, the first cognitive interviewing I did was with solicitors, and I have no legal experience, and that's very different from speaking to the general population about a topic that you know about, and you have to um, make sure you're using the right language and so on with a professional group. In most of our testing, we would want to ensure that Um, we cover the range and diversity of people in terms of how they'd go about responding to the question but also to make sure we include the key groups in the population so you should would always ensure you have at least some people from minority backgrounds but when the topic of the survey is about ethnicity or background or you're looking at why um, certain groups are underrepresented in um, certain responses in surveys then you would want to have a much larger sample of the groups of interest and make sure you don't just talk about ethnic minorities as a whole but you look at different subgroups um, or where something is affected very much by age you would have a lot of detailed age groups so the research questions you have and the target population for the survey will affect how you design the sample and how you approach the interviews I'm just thinking of some of the cases so there's the the differences you know are coming you know that we were doing some work looking at um, an inclusive gender question and it was really important that we tested that with a variety of gender identities and a variety um, of ages because people's understanding of of gender is very different you know and has really changed over time so understanding that but those are the things you kind of go in knowing oh I've got to take that into account but I think sometimes the thing that shocks you the most is the difference you didn't see coming that actually um, you find by making sure you're talking to a, a range of people and it can often be useful to review what your quotas are between rounds to make sure you're covering that I think yes particularly if in an early round something emerged which you didn't expect and you realize it came up with one person but you need to speak to more people with that those characteristics the the other area which um, is if a questionnaire is eventually going to be translated in designing your cognitive testing you have to consider the extent to which you're testing the source language which in our case would be English or the target languages and when you do that and how you manage that yeah, I think that that can be a real a real challenge. It's, de- depending on how extensively the the languages are going to be used, I think that often impacts how much we do that testing. But it can often have a real impact. Yeah. And Anna, you were kind of mentioning sort of sense, sensitive topics and and thinking thinking about that. How does that impact how we do the tests themselves? It can affect them the process all the way through. I think there's it depends exactly as you say what methodology and what format you use. So from the very start, how are you going to design it? Are you going to go and do this in person? Are you going to or does it do you actually create a safer space for someone by doing it online? What's the participant going to feel most comfortable in? It's a really weird thing for a participant to do. I think it's worth just reflecting on this for a second, sitting there saying not not no no. I don't want to know how, what your answer is. I want to know how you came to that answer. It's a very odd process for them, especially when they're thinking out loud 
loud. Some people can find it much more comfortable. Some people can find it much less comfortable. So just thinking about what setting and what's appropriate for them is really important. Then once you've got past that element of it, as you said, there's a key element for particularly on sensitive topics around safeguarding and how do you make sure that anything that um, any any disclosures are handled appropriately, that you've got the right mechanisms in place to make sure that the that, that you get what you need, but at the same time that you're that you're willing and able to stop if that if that person needs help or, or needs something that, that that you can't give them within that interview setting. And certainly the worst case scenario is you kind of end up in a situation where you're interviewing someone on a sensitive topic that's quite raw. And effectively, you, you, there's a risk of re-traumatisation re and actually making them talk and think about something that's, something that's happened to them and making them relive that. And that obviously can potentially be very harmful to them. And that's about the interviewer just reading the situation, reading the room, understanding the person and being very willing to give them space, give them time, spending a lot of time on setup and making people really comfortable. It can be really, really tempting when you're doing a cognitive test to just go, these are the five questions I need to test. Right, let's get to question one because that's what would happen in the survey. But actually, it's a very this is a qualitative experience. So I think it's really important you spend five Five, 10 minutes just chatting about who are you how what do you do let me know let me know into your let me into your life before I ask you these very questions and you can also then use that as source material to test what you're hearing back from the cognitive interviewing part because you can say oh but you said this thing to me and that's not really what come through in your answer codes and then they're like, oh yeah well no I didn't think you meant that but that that kind of letting someone talk and giving them the space can be really helpful as well especially where it's a bit more sensitive and you want to kind of recognize what their language is and meet them there as well as imposing your own kind of structure on them um that's just a few but i'm sure the <laughs> colleagues will be able to add more <laughs> yes and it can be quite unexpected I, I was doing some testing of a question about questionnaire about physical activity and all kinds of sensitive issues came up about um, the impact of partners disability on their ability to do physical activity the impact of the pandemic on and the cost of living on their lives the impact of some the death of a family member so yes I think we always have to be prepared for sensitive topics to come up in any interview um, but where where we know in advance it's sensitive preparing as Anna said is most important having a support leaflet or something like that so that you're prepared and then not le not leaving suddenly at the end having got the information you want but also winding down and enabling them to finish what they wanted to say to you yeah we recently completed some cognitive interviews on a project related to children's experience of crime you know that's obviously a more sensitive topic it was asking questions for example around whether they've been a victim of a crime uh, domestically abused or so asking if they themselves or a close friend have committed a crime. And, you know, when this survey is actually live in the environment that it's intended, then the survey is 100% confidential. So we at Ipsos know the schools that have taken part in the study, but we can't analyze individual responses. And then for the client, it's the opposite. They have access to the data, but they don't know the schools that took part. And so yeah, we were running the cognitive interviews face to face because of the subject matter. But then because of that, we might have been informed about a potentially serious situation related to someone under the age of 16, which is yeah, different to how this operates when it's in field. So there were lots of discussions with our ethics and disclosure teams here at Ipsos to think about the best way to approach this. And we discussed many ways. We could ask the young person not to answer the question directly, but we had conversations around it could be a situation where the researcher is actually viewed by the young person taking part as a responsible adult and someone 
that they have decided to tell in that situation. So we did have to leave it open and provide them that opportunity to disclose. So as Anna was saying, that setup was really important and we had to be really open up front. Uh, we did say we're not necessarily interested in your specific answers to these questions. It's just your understanding, but if you want to answer, you can, yeah. So we were obviously more interested in how they comprehended the question and answer options, but yeah, they were obviously free to answer them openly. But it was just about having that extra safeguarding and disclosure process in place and being very open and honest with the young participant up front. If they were to raise something, you know, there were additional checks on whether it's a serious situation or not, which again picks up on something that Margaret was saying earlier. We had two researchers present at the interview. There was one person asking the questions, whereas the secondary researcher was on hand to pick up on any safeguarding issues, because in the moment when you're going through an interview, you're thinking mostly about the discussion guide and going on to the next question. But having that second researcher there was great to say, you know, this is your job to pick up on any safeguarding concerns. Those conversations often are the most important thing of thinking through what are all the ways this could happen and and almost as well as thinking about safeguarding not just the participant but also the researcher and not putting people in a position where it's just one person having to make this call in this moment where you know that's likely to come to come up having someone else there so that it's it you know it's not just you sitting with it and people know okay this is the process if something goes wrong um i think is a is a big a big benefit to making sure the research works right but also making sure that pe everyone comes out of it in the best possible way that's really important and jack you uh, do a lot of work with sort of children and young people are there specific things that you tend to think about with with that I have worked on a couple of projects recently where we've had to uh, cognitively test on children and young people and to be honest many of the techniques that we've discussed during this do still apply you know we as a researcher we still need to observe how they respond to the question pick up any cues that they're having difficulty with and then probe further where necessary um, but I would say from my experience anyway the thinking aloud technique often actually comes more naturally to children than it does for a lot of adults. They're very happy to talk uh, as they think. Um, so as long as you're clear about that method at the start and they tend to pick it up really quickly and they are great at giving you information about exactly what they're thinking. In one recent project, we were cognitively testing a survey that would be handed out on paper after the students had attended um, uh, a session that a university would come to their school and deliver basically. Um, so obviously they hadn't attended this event in real life so we had to kind of create a fictional named event and ask them to imagine that a university had visited their school and then delivered that which was quite tricky at the beginning to kind of get the children to understand the difference here between what was real and what wasn't and to kind of focus on the content and the words included in the question asking you know whether they've un understood them individually rather than focusing on this fictional event. Um, but yeah, sometimes I think with young people, it just takes a little bit more patience and describing the process, you know, give them enough time to understand the context, ask questions really slowly, one at a time, make intentional pause, pauses. And yeah, it's also just really important to be friendly, supportive and express interest in what they're saying as well, helping to build their confidence to answer your questions, basically. And yeah, you also just need to think Definitely, and I think this is again building on what Anna was saying about words that make sense to us but don't make sense to a young person. 
that changes really quickly. There was another recent survey going live about smoking, drinking and drugs, uh, which has been running for quite a long time. And there's a word in the survey around Alcapops, which I'm sure everyone in this room knows what an Alcapop is, but someone under the age of 16 doesn't use that anymore. Um, and we discovered that by being able to cognitively test and, you know, without that, we wouldn't have been able to do that. So young people have their own specific, unique language, I would say. <laughs> I imagine there's also, I mean, we, we're talking about children and young people as one big blob, but actually, you know, the, the difference between a five, six-year-old and a 15, 16-year-old are very, very different. And making sure you're aware of that when you're setting your quotas, thinking about what your what your guide is and how it asks is important. I mean, it's also important to think about that for your questionnaire, but factoring that into the cognitive interviewing is also really important. I think having done a lot of work with Ofcom recently, one of the challenges they have it, or the, it, that exists is around where should the boundaries be? So at what point do you switch the language from being child-friendly to adult-friendly? And you definitely can't ask the same questions about online harm to an 18-year-old as you can to a 5-year-old. But what age do you switch from the child-friendly language to the adult-friendly language? And that can sometimes happen by accident. But then I think cog testing is one of those things that can actually help you understand when do the children's language change or the young people's language change so that you can capture that more and recognizing it's going to change over time as well like to jack's point language is constantly evolving and really quickly um particularly when it relates to online and particularly with those younger audiences so that challenge of like how do we how do we keep up to date i think is a really interesting one I'm also thinking, you know, with research in, in healthcare, we worked on a survey um, looking at uh, people's experience of paediatric care and the cognitive interviewing for that. It was really interesting how involved children felt in their own care, depending on the age group. And so it wasn't just how we asked the questions. It was who was appropriate to ask what questions to. And I think we've, we've done research before where we were asking about children's experience of hospital care and things like cleanliness, their parents really worried about. But when you spoke to the children, that was not their priority about their experience of care and and actually being able to unpick that if you ask them you know how clean was it they just couldn't answer because that wasn't what they remembered about the time in hospital final question i thought as a researcher is there an impact that you've thought about how you do research now about a project or particular work that changed because of a cognitive interview I'll start with me. I've definitely changed a lot of things about how I, I ask survey questions from cognitive interviews over the years. But um, I think the one that really stuck with me um, was some work we were doing on an inclusive gender question where we were testing it with um, trans audiences. And it wasn't what there was. It was a young person I was speaking to and the it wasn't what they said it was how they said it when the question was right and um, when they were shown a kind of a question that didn't work they gave me an answer but they were really quiet and they were clear there was a big kind of pause and they clearly weren't very happy and then I gave them the question that we ended up going with and they just let out this deep this breath of oh oh yes, no, that's the question I wanted to hear. That was the thing I was looking for. And it wasn't what they said, but the way they said it was so different. It really made me realise the impact the right question can have on how someone thinks of the survey and what you are asking of them. Overall, I would say the more cognitive interviewing you do, the, the greater impact it has on how you then design 
later questions because all the time when you have the kind of experience you've just said or actually people pick up specific things about questions, you've learned what works and doesn't work and then that informs your later thinking. But I can think of one example where I was interviewing a young person testing a question about disability and the mother was observing and she laughed and she said, why have you got difficulty concentrating and paying attention at the bottom of a long list of impacts of impairments on people's lives and I thought oh yes how could we possibly have designed a question like that um so I always think about answer category order but it also just highlighted how helpful cognitive interviewing is even if you think you're experienced in designing questions there is always something that will surprise you and help you make the questions better I don't think I have that one eureka moment, but at the same time, there's lots of little incremental things. And also, when you asked me that question, it reminded me of way back when I joined Ipsos many years ago, it was Mori, and one of the parts of the induction was you had to follow an interviewer out doing face-to-face interviews and watch them just talk through. You You just sat there, you just observed... And I watched them do the most naff survey. No offence to it. I'm sure the people have left now. Um, but it was the, it was not a very well designed survey. And you watch the participant, and they're just the energy drained, and this the 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 quality of the answers was clearly they weren't answering the question the researchers thought they were answering. They 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 were just kind of giving you anything to get through what they thought was the quickest routing to get to the end of that section of the, of, of this survey. And I think. That, for me, made me realise what a responsibility there is on us as researchers to genuinely get those questions so that they're capturing what people want to tell us rather than what we want to hear Mm. and recognising that need of, like, you can use all the fancy London words you like, but to be honest, there's a real world out there and these people are not policy wonks. They are not stuck in this world of of, of social research and policy. That's just not their thing. And there's so many languages, so many different words we use, so just a different terminology we have in our Westminster bubble. You read The Guardian, you assume that that's the language everyone has, and it's just not. Um, so you, whether that's the Times, it, it, the point is that we need to meet people where they are and recognise that our surveys are going out across the country, and they're designed to give everybody a voice, not just the people who understand our language. So we need to go to them. So I think it's just a, that kind of on-the-doorstep moment of like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm really not in the same space as some other people, and I need to sort this out. I think cognitive testing is a really good way of getting to that point um so that's why i'm a really strong advocate for it brilliant thank you very much so i think that's all we've got time for today so thank you so much to my guests margaret anna and jack it's been really interesting to talk about the impact of cognitive interviewing and what can tell us about the research we do and how we can do it better and make sure that we're keeping our respondents at the center of what we do and and making sure that our surveys work for them Um, so and thank you to the listener for joining us um, if this has piqued your interest in survey research methods um, or it's made you think oh I want to remember more about that um, particular topic you can always listen back to some of our previous episodes looking at the future of face-to-face research tailoring push to web methods and conducting methods experiments on surveys um, and we hope you've enjoyed listening to the conversation today thank you, thank you.